Brilliant. Here we are. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Thank you all for being here for this event about uh, the FCDO and the reunification of foreign and development policy. Personally speaking, it is great to see so many people back in the building. Neil at the back said, and they came even though there were no sandwiches. So we're really happy that you're all here and uh, looking forward to what should be a fantastic discussion. My name is Tim Durrant. I'm an associate director, and I have been following the work of the FCDO for the Institute for a couple of years now, since the merger. Uh, as you will know, the department is always busy, but since it was merged from the Foreign Office and DFID in 2020, it has had a particularly full-on couple of years. So we've seen the exit from the EU, the pandemic, evacuating British staff, armed forces, and allies from Afghanistan, and then, of course, since February of this year, responding to the war in Ukraine. So we thought now was a good time to bring together this fantastic panel to think about how the department is doing, how the merger has gone, and whether it has set the UK government up to respond to the big foreign policy challenges of the coming years. I'll do a quick round of introductions. We'll have a bit of housekeeping, and then we will get going. So on my right, Sir Alan Duncan, former MP for Rutland and Melton, and Minister of State in both DFID and the Foreign Office. Down the line from Rotherham, Sarah Champion MP, uh, who is MP for Rotherham and Chair of the International Development Committee. Stephanie Draper, CEO of Bond, which is the UK network for organizations working in international development. And Stephanie has a long career in sustainable development. And on the far end of the stage, Lord MacDonald, Simon MacDonald, uh, former permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office. Thank you. And uh, a former ambassador to Israel and Germany. Uh, we will have plenty of time for Q&A. So for those of you watching online, feel free to start sending in your questions now. We've got uh, colleagues moderating that. I will see them all here. Um, and then those in the room will have plenty of time for, for discussion here. Um, we are also live tweeting using hashtag IFGFCDO. So if you'd like to join the conversation online, feel free to do that. Um, without further ado, then, I'm going to turn to Sir Alan first. Uh, as mentioned, you were a minister in both the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development. What was your reaction to the merger when it was announced a couple of years ago? Firstly, a warm welcome uh, and wave uh, to Sarah, who um, we got on extremely well when we were on opposite sides of the House of Commons. Uh, these things do happen, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as we will again today, I sense. Um, and I just point out that I was um, minister uh, in DFID, only as DFID, and in the Foreign Office. I wasn't one of those double-hatted ministers who, in a stupid arrangement, in my view, were asked to do both. Um, so let me, if I may, just fire a few uh, shots at uh, this amalgamation and explain where I think it's gone wrong. Um, the Foreign Office is a jewel in the crown. I love it. I love being there. But from 2010, as our sort of imperial reputation continued to, to sing a little bit, uh, we did uh, establish supremacy in development, which uh, gave us massive global influence and it was a very good supplement to the talented efforts of the Foreign Office. But uh, what has happened since, I think, in this amalgamation has been both a crime and a catastrophe. Uh, it was not in the manifesto. No arguments of any adequate sort were ever made in advance of it. Uh, with sleight of hand, the commitment to 0.7 uh, was uh, eroded as soon as the amalgamation was made. Um, and I think that if there were to be any amalgamation, you could have put the Department of Trade in with the Foreign Office, uh, but not uh, DFID. The consequence of the amalgamation, I think some of the points are obvious from the start. Uh, we have one less international voice around the cabinet table uh, and in the world. 
Um, there are very different areas of expertise as between diplomacy and constructing and delivering a development program. Um, and I think that at a more micro level, and, uh, and Simon will be able to comment on this, I, I, I think it will remain almost impossible to align uh, the skills and the salary levels and the efficacy of open selection to positions in the new FCDO uh, as a result of this amalgamation. Uh, it is a forced marriage which has very, very malign consequences. Um, some of the immediate consequences, I think, have been that some of the best development people have fled. Um, at a very human level across the world in what I thought was a disgusting ordering of priorities, uh, immediate humanitarian need to the likes of Yemen was cut, whereas some longer-term projects for empowering people or justice, which have merit but far less tangible outcomes, uh, have uh, remained. But there's a real false premise behind this, which is that somehow it would enhance the status and effectiveness of the Foreign Office. Uh, I think this is rubbish. I think that, first of all, uh, one of the main questions was about resources. And overseas development assistance money cannot just be diverted uh, to different uses because it is constrained uh, by the OEC def definition within the primary legislation which governs it. So the idea that somehow DFID money could go and help the Foreign Office is complete intellectual rot. As a result of this, I think morale is low, and I think that the amalgamation has diminished the UK at a critical period of post-Brexit scrutiny. You've also seen the illogical reduction in the number of ministers when you have put into the same building twice the responsibilities. So instead of having a dedicated Middle East minister, uh, we now have a Middle East minister who covers Asia as well. This is impractical and utterly bonkers. You cannot be in two places at once. We have less effective presence in international institutions where we used to dominate and shape the policy and expenditure of many of the UN organizations to which we gave money. And now we won't have enough ministers simply to go to their meetings in order to keep an eye on where our money has gone. So I don't think the amalgamated organization has either the skills or the capacity to do both diplomacy and development. I think it was a simplistic gesture to please nationalistic opinion, which has done us and the poorest people in the world a lot of harm. It was a fake solution to the needs of the Foreign Office. And if I may, just to get things going, look Lord MacDonald right in the eye and say, j'accuse. <laughs> well, at least we know where you stand. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Sir Alan. That is a great start to the conversation. Um, to pick up on one of the specific areas that, that Sir Alan raised there, Sarah, if I can turn to you next about what the merger has meant for the UK's development policy. Obviously, we know three or four months after the merger was announced and came into effect, the Chancellor then decided that the UK would no longer spend 0.7% of national income on aid. So how have those two things together affected, uh, from your point of view, the UK's approach to, to international development? Well, I mean, it's, it's a massive um, act of self-sabotage 
um, at the time when, uh, if one is to believe uh, the slogans around Global Britain, we were looking to redefine ourselves internationally. Um, what we did, well, we did redefine ourselves internationally, just not the way we intended. Um, I went with the committee to Geneva to meet most of the big multilaterals in the September um, after the um, uh, merger uh, had sort of started to bite and the cuts had as well. And we were absolutely beaten up um, by the international organisations that we met for um, reneging on our responsibilities to them, reneging on our responsibilities to the world's poorest, and uh, just um, went from a position of a country that was trusted because uh, we could be believed on our word and we acted within the rule of law to a country that uh, did whatever it felt was in its best interest and uh, expected the rest of the world to pick up the pieces. Unfortunately, um, I don't think that position is shifting much. Uh, we had the development strategy launched on Monday. Uh, we had the Foreign Secretary in front of my committee yesterday. And when we pushed her, she admitted that um, it was very much a work in progress. Uh, they've got a budget that's been signed off, but that's not in the public domain. The areas where we pushed her on content, it was very clear that they were still being worked through and the um, open lack of consultation with people on the ground, with the international community, and most importantly for me, with the people that would be the recipients um, and sort of delivering at, at the coalface uh, was very stark to us. I think you can look at um, Afghanistan, which has been referenced already, to see how um, the merger has really hampered our ability. And I feel so much for the um, FCDO uh, staff, uh, because when um, the withdrawal was announced, uh, they were uh, brought together, the DFID team and the um, FC, FCO team were brought together to deal with the evacuation. Um, and at its most basic level, they had two separate computer systems that weren't talking to each other. So the hot desk, it was actually hot computering because people had to be taught how to use the computer system before they could actually start helping people. And we saw on television the consequences of that lag uh, play out with devastating consequences. Um, I understand sort of the the principle that the government is trying to achieve, um, but I really think um, it, it's undermining it, its credibility, its ability, and it's hemorrhaging really good development staff, as, as well as um, sacrificing our international reputation. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm not quite as brutal as Alan, um, but uh, everything you said is right. <laughs> Great, thank you. More elegant. <laughs> um, Stephanie, from Bond's point of view, I think it's fair to say when the merger was announced, the international development community was quite nervous about what it meant. How, how do you feel now? How has it played out over the last couple of years? Do you think you were right to be nervous in 2020? Um, yes, in, in an answer. Um, I guess we were nervous about it because um, it's very difficult to bring long-term development priorities together with very immediate short-term foreign policy gains. Um, and the merger has largely been overshadowed by the cuts in the budget. But would the cuts in the budget 
have happened so speedily had we had cabinet representation, had we had that sort of perspective, that long-term perspective. I mean, we can um, but ask the question. So I think, I mean, we saw it very much as being all about the money. The Foreign Office wanted to get its hands on the aid budget. It did. It then cut it. Um, we have seen the priority of development decrease in the new department. So if we just look at how long it took to get an international development strategy, it's been coming for, well, it feels like my entire life, but, um, <laughs> but it is out now. Um, and so, and that has also now made that very clear that development is in service of foreign policy, which is a shift that wouldn't have happened with um, two separate departments. I think that that loss of long-term thinking is really important. So if we look at that as a sort of perspective within the cabinet, and one of the things that we were concerned about as the merger happened was the proportion of leadership that had come from DFID. Um, it was two out of a leadership team of eight. Um, that's slightly <coughs> changing now, but also the kind of confusion around what the ministerial responsibilities were. So um, you have um, more recently James Cleverley being the Minister for Development, um, but also for Europe and Russia and Iran and um, trade, I think, in FCDO. So massive portfolios that are just totally unmanageable and illogical and always pull ministers back into short-term priorities. So what has resulted is you, you have a foreign secretary who has visited, as you would expect, and rightly so, a number of countries where we have trade opportunities or um, big foreign policy issues, but none of, um, none of the countries that a development secretary would have visited. Mm. So we lose out on that kind of insight into what's happening um, in, uh, in <coughs> different African countries and what their perspectives are. And that has had an impact on things like Ukraine because um, there are lots of people that we talk to and our partners talk to that um, are saying, well, Ukraine is actually, the sanctions are more of a problem than Russian aggression and we don't really trust um, the UK government anymore because they have reneged on all sorts of other promises. So they're, they're, that's kind of also um, problematic. So there's, there's that kind of loss of long-term perspective that... Um, we think is difficult. Um, in terms of opportunities, there are small wins. We actually felt that the kind of engagement around Afghanistan was quite between the Foreign Office and development colleagues and bringing insights from NGOs working on the ground and briefings from um, the Foreign Office was actually quite effective once um, we got past that sort of initial stage. Um, but but we've still been sort of slow to capitalize on things like um, sanctions. So there's a real opportunity in something like bringing, um, so sanctions, um, you need to have, um, you need to have, um, what's the word? I've lost the word. But anyway, um, you, sanction, you need to have exclusions mm. for um, human rights actors. And that took a long time coming, and it was after the UN convention in Afghanistan because obviously you didn't want to give money to the Taliban, so you've got people on the ground not able to provide support. Exemptions. That would have that would have been an opportunity that the merged department could really That's have capitalised on. Yeah. And similarly, in the new international development strategy, 
we would have thought that things like rights and freedoms and human rights, which were FCO's strength, mm. and um, civic space and kind of protecting freedoms would have been a really central part of the international mm. development strategy um, because that's an opportunity for the merger, but that hasn't, hasn't come to pass either. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Simon, uh, apologies for coming to you last. You, you said you would get beaten up, and I think it's happened. Um, you were in favour of the merger when it was announced. We've actually heard that there have been there, there is some optimism that the merger could have done some good things. Do you, what opportunities did you see before it happening, and how how do you think it's played out? Yeah, well, I am uh, used to being in a minority because I was a British diplomat all my career, uh, and I feel as though I'm in a minority now. But you are right. I absolutely believe that the merger was the right thing to do. I absolutely disagree with everything Alan said and a lot of what Sarah and Stephanie said, and here's why. Um, two general points to start. First of all, uh, the United Kingdom has too many ministries. The cabinet of the United Kingdom is way too big. Uh, through the 19th century, when we were the most powerful country in the world, we made do with a cabinet of 15. Now it is 30-plus people. So there is a structural thing in our government which has got out of kilter. Uh, second, uh, the United Kingdom is now um, a power of middle rank. It's a big middle rank power, but the superpowers of the United States and China are way ahead of us. In international, in international arenas, my experience is that if you are to have clout, you need to be uh, united in your messaging. So I think for a country of our size, the logical choice is to have one overseas policy player. Uh, so picking up something that Alan said, yes, I would also include trade uh, in the FCO in due course. So for reasons of impact and coherence, I think logically for the United Kingdom, one overseas player is the way to go. But points two and three are around overall philosophy and the circumstances in which this actually happened. And overall philosophy, I, I, you know, I agree with a lot of what Sarah and Stephanie were saying, that um, it's, uh, it wasn't clear at the get-go. And one reason it wasn't clear was that this just happened. You know, we were uh, all waiting for the integrated foreign defense development policy review. Um, logically, this would have been something ventilated in that review and might have been one of the recommendations coming from the review, but the merger anticipated all of that. And so it meant that this kind of discussion was not had in advance of the merger. So that, that was just a, a, you know, a, a sequencing structural problem. Um, because we didn't have that, then the sort of ministry wasn't clear at the beginning. Except, of course, certain things happen in any case. So the observation of the first year, my observation from the outside, because I left uh, the Foreign Office the day before the merger took place, my observation of the first year 
was that um, the government was trying to smash together two departments at a molecular level. Uh, so the development would be sort of sprinkled evenly through the new organization. Um, and frankly, I think part of the motivation for that was that later it would be more difficult to unpick. I personally never felt that was the sensible way to go because development expertise, as uh, Sarah and Stephanie have in particular made clear, is distinct uh, and has been distinctly useful for Britain on the wider international stage. Uh, after a year or so, it seemed a rethink began. And so last month, the Foreign Secretary announced a new structure, a new emerging structure uh, in the FCDO. And now we have Nick Dyer appointed as a DG uh, humanitarian affairs, I think, in effect. So now it's sort of recapturing, crystallizing um, uh, development as uh, a, a distinct um, part of overseas policy. Uh, so I, my personal preference is, uh, is that. I remember, I remember uh, uh, as an effective time, the 1990s when you had Douglas Hurd sitting on the whole uh, machine, and under him you had the FCO and a distinct ODA with Chris Patton and Linda Chalker reporting to him uh, and reporting to him so that it was a coherent overall overseas policy. And I think, I still think that is the best way for uh, the country. Now we have the circumstances of, 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 the, uh, of the detailed circumstances, and they were just awful. I mean, the pandemic made everything more difficult. Um, it was hard enough working with people that you knew well already when you were work working virtually, when you were working through screens, when you were trying to create a new organization, and I think it is very important for everybody to think in terms of a new organization, and I dispute very strongly Stephanie's idea that it's an FCO takeover. It isn't an FCO takeover. It can't be an FCO takeover. The FCO never thought we're getting all of Diffid's money because we know ex the law that Alan laid out. It's just not legally possible. It wasn't ever part of the motivation. But ha having all that remote working with unclear structures and ambitions was really, really difficult. And then most difficult of all, uh, as Sarah said, was the cut, the completely unexpected cut in ODA. Uh, now, I, Stephanie, you have a, 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 an optimistic view of how cabinet works, uh, but if there had been an extra voice, it would have made not one jot of difference. Um, this was a decision taken elsewhere and was a, a body blow to the new ministry. So it happened within three months that um, more than one third of the budget just disappeared. And some very bizarre things happened as Alan laid out, the, the, where, where cuts were made in programs. You know, it, it, was, it was done too quick and it was too savage and, and we're all suffering from that. But I very much think that is the circumstances rather than the philosophy of trying to do overseas policy in one place. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I know there's lots to reflect on there, but 
as I'm here, I'm going to ask a couple of follow-up questions. So one of the things I'm interested in is this merger is unlike pretty much any other departmental rearrangement in that the FCO and DFID and FCDO, as it now is, have an international presence. There are people merging, not just down the road in Whitehall, but all over the <coughs> world. One of the things that we've been told is that actually abroad, UK officials tend to work very well together. So whether it's DFID, FCO, Home Office, Ministry of Justice, whoever it might be, when they're in post, there's closer working just because they're all in the same office anyway and you know they're all foreigners together in this place. It's here, back at, at home in London, where the difficulties play out more. Is that something you experienced when you were at well, FCO? Well, I mean, Tim, I think that's a, an optimistic way of, of, of looking how things used to work. Um, one of the problems that we had, one of the reasons I say boldly that we were running multiple foreign policies was my, my experience of what was happening on the ground. And some of it was, was quite material. You know, you could see it physically. Uh, so I, I uh, cite Kampala. Um, you know, Uganda is a, an important partner of the United Kingdom. In the early 2000s, we built a new compound for the High Commission. Uh, DFID, under Claire Shaw, had a totally different building. You know, so it, was, it just wasn't true that it was all one happy team in one place because head office insisted on separateness. And that was repeated around the world, that generally DFID was in a different place from the FCO. Uh, and even where they were in one place, so Harare, they were in separate wings on either side of reception, so separate. Uh, so, you know, trying to bring things together overseas was part of the motivation. Uh, and I think some of the good things that have happened since the merger have happened in the field as a consequence of closer working. So uh, I get lots of reports that in Pakistan we have much more coherent working together. It's a big partner, there is a lot of development spend, and it, it, you know, the, 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 the team is purring in a way that it wasn't earlier. Uh, so everyone can locate themselves in a single policy thrust. I don't recognize that, if I might say so. When I was DFID minister, our policy was co-location wherever possible. And indeed, wherever I could allocate any of my budget to assist the FCO, I would do so. We completely retrofitted the entire compound in Nepal against earthquakes. Uh, we uh, also uh, helped with a new building in Bangladesh. Uh, and indeed, I went to Simon's predecessor, Simon Fraser, and said, I hear you're going to close your embassies in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. If I spend a couple of million quid in each, will you keep them open? So we actually helped the Foreign Office keep embassies open in that case, where otherwise they would have shut them. Now, there is inevitably a little bit of division because the skills and the purposes are different. Uh, but I think that, again, the rule of thumb was always that the ambassador was the top person in any location, uh, and ultimately DFID would answer to them, although the programs and how they were designed went through the expert hands of people in DFID. So the question I, I still would put is, what was the problem that you thought existed that needed to be solved? I and would, I, and I you've just asked add, me a question. Yeah, and I just add... <laughs> That I And how would you answer the charge that our reputation for development, which had considerable significance across the world, has been seriously diminished? So, if that's all right, I want to make sure Sarah and Stephanie have a chance to, to speak as well. So, um, 
clearly strong feelings. I mean, Sarah, from, from the point of view of scrutinizing development work, what's your impression of how, if, you have, if you've been able during the pandemic to look at this, of how this is playing out in the field, uh, as well as in places like Geneva and, and New York? Um, well, well, first of all, I, I want to say to Sir Simon uh, that we were a development superpower, and, and we chose to give that away in the last two years. Um, I also want to say, uh, and uh, I, I think Sir Helen will, will back me up on this, there's a, there's a whole industry, and this organisation is part of it respectfully, that tries to make sense of decisions that come out of number 10, come out of Parliament, and we, we write a history uh, based on a rational um, understanding of what we're presented. I struggled to find um, a rational uh, understanding of the merger. And the only thing that has been given to me that makes sense was by a very senior official from number 10, who said, Sarah, you need to understand, Boris Johnson was getting really frustrated that Brexit wasn't moving fast enough. And so we threw him some red meat in the merger because when he was the um, foreign secretary, he was so frustrated that Diffid had all the money and he had the nice buildings, but no cash. And why that resonates with me is because when he came into the chamber, he spoke about get, basically getting the cash point in the sky. And it is up to government to reorganize, however. And a lot of what Sir Simon was saying about, um, you know, <sighs> too many seats and duplication and, and all of that stuff. I, I'm sure if I was in Kampala, I, I just see, you know, the UK government and a front door. That makes my life simpler. Where you get divided from that point, um, I, I don't think would matter to me. But what worries me is that um, in this rush to uh, create this merger, um, we did it in the midst of a pandemic. And if it was for the right reasons. So if it was for sort of a, a strategy or, or a repositioning or for, for philosophical, philosophical reason, uh, absolutely do it. But why do it in the midst of a pandemic? That makes no sense to me. And it has really hampered the work that we could do internationally on, on COVID-19 response, for example. Uh, and I, it just frustrates me that we, from the outside, we try and justify what I think was a very personal reaction to something. Um, and then coming on to um, staffing, I think one thing that we need to put into the debate is that FCDO has now become a reserve department, which means it only hires UK nationals. And an awful lot of the DFID staff around the world uh, were local staff. So it's not only that our own staff are leaving, it's also we're losing the expertise of those staff on the ground. And I think that that's a real, real mistake and something that we're going to pay for. Thank you. Um, Stephanie, you talked about Afghanistan and Ukraine, and I'm interested, as I said at the beginning, it feels like we've had two years of crisis, non-stop crisis. Do you think the FCDO is better placed to respond to crisis overseas than two separate departments? And if not, what more could it do? Do you think uh, the appointment that, that Simon mentioned of a DG humanitarian affairs, is that helpful? Should there be more senior management focus specifically on humanitarian and crisis response? Well, I, th I think the DG of um, that Nick Dyer's role is a really interesting 
um, development because it acknowledges that development needs to be addressed and treated separately and differently. So in a sense, it kind of um, recognises that there are two different tracks running and that you need to um, approach them differently. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you do need different, in, in crises, you do need all of those skills to come together. But um, my understanding was that that was working pretty well before when you had, had crises. And I think in, um, in country, um, I have a little bit of a sort of objection of calling it the field, it seems um, disrespectful, but um, uh, that whole, um, there was lots of sort of co-working um, and people coming together. I think what we're hearing now is, um, you know, heads of mission got briefed on the international development strategy on Tuesday and sort of their big coming together, annual coming together. Um, and so ambassadors are really interested in development, but they don't really know how to do it. And there aren't necessarily people there who can really sort of offer that expertise. So having to develop people when you had people already who have now left seems, again, another sort of illogical move. Yeah. Um, there are lots of questions coming in online about staffing, which I think will be interesting to get into in a minute. But before we do that, I'd like to come to questions in the room. So we have a roving microphone. So Can I uh, just point out everyone else has had two goes? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, when I was POS, I visited 124 different posts, and I did not see the harmony. We had really big problems in country, uh, between FCO and DFID, and these persist because the necessary combination of terms and conditions, even of computer systems, as Sarah said, haven't happened so far. They are needed, but now there's a one hell of a push to do that. But um, there was divided policymaking and divided perception in country, and I saw that many times myself. Um, uh, on crisis, um, we did do it quite well together, but I think uh, separate, when we were separate, I think it will be better in future, and I hope that Ukraine is going to be the big test case, because Ukraine is a classic political, but also a developing development challenge. And so the biggest foreign policy issue of the era is one where I think having a single ministry uh, should have greater effect. Uh, and last point, uh, Sarah said we, we've, we've stopped being a development superpower in the last two years. Um, if that is the case, I contend that's because of the cut in the budget rather than how we are doing it. Thank you. Um, question here at the front. Uh, use my microphone. Thank you. I'm, I'm Tamsin Barton from the Independent Commission for Aid Impact. So we're, our job is to provide independent scrutiny of uh, UK aid. And I just thought I'd bring up an issue on which the panel may wish to comment. I'm fairly confident that Sarah will wish to comment on it, which is the issue of information, culture, and transparency. So I think one of the interesting things about the merger is you're bringing together departments with very different cultures in relation to information. So the Foreign Office has traditionally had very legitimate reasons for not wanting to publish everything about what it was spending money on. Uh, now that the, the two departments emerged, you had a department, DFID, which was much more committed to transparency, specifically in relation to aid expenditure. 
what we have observed in relation to ICAI, uh, and I'll leave Sarah to comment on the work of the committee, is it has been a bit more challenging to do that scrutiny uh, because of the merger of the cultures, if you like. So the new department is still working out its attitude to information security and transparency. We tend to think that transparency is a good thing. We're doing a review of how it's uh, being implemented and uh, I, I urge you to look out for that. At the moment, we don't know the answer to this question, but that's our initial impression. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. I think we'll take a couple of questions, maybe two more, and then we'll um, come to the panel. So one behind. Uh, thank you, Nick Westcott at SOAS. Um, this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, development has been in and out of the Foreign Office uh, since it was started, and Labour takes it out and Conservatives put it back in. And I was there at the divorce. And the trouble with this is that uh, at the time, uh, sadly, Claire Short and Robin Cook weren't best mates, and uh, the objective was to make development as different as possible. This had the benefit that developing country partners thought DFID was there for them. And it had huge credibility, and it had huge influence. And uh, because it was seen as doing good and not just doing British interests. But I mean, this is a, a, a total reversal, whatever about the merger, that aid is now there to serve British interests. It's there explicitly in the development strategy. Um, and, and that is perceived across the world. So to some extent, I want to ask, do the panel feel we've actually thrown away a large chunk of our soft power and uh, developed this sort of lack of trust, which unfortunately will then have knock-on consequences for development outcomes. Thanks. Great, thank you. And then behind, um, gentlemen. Uh, James Kidner from Rebellion Defence, uh, which is a tech company, but uh, after 30 odd years in the Foreign Office. Um, it's a delight to be back at the Institute for Government, sandwiches or not, but I'm reminded that it's a place that sometimes feels a little bit like Versailles must have felt up until 1789, that it's detached from what I would call the realities in the country. Because no one's talked about the politics of this merger. The, presumably the reason the government made the merger happen is because they thought it would be popular. Why is it that development work has never really captured the imagination of people out in the country? I come from Devon and I know that most people you meet in the pub down there would not see moving from 0.7% to 0.5% as a disaster. They would be more concerned about local issues. And I guess this is more a question for the politicians on the panel than the other experts. But as I say, it's a pleasure to be back here. Brilliant. Thank you for those questions. And we will try and do another round and do some online as well. But um, if I could come perhaps, Simon, on the culture and transparency point, do you think, well? Yeah, I mean, with they are still working it out. But transparency is the default setting. And the FCO, before it was FCDO, was, was you know, going slowly in that direction. There were some very specific development programs which were under the FCO where there was a, a sort of confidential, not secret, but confidential element. But, um, but transparency is absolutely the right way to go. And I think the merger will push the FCO elements within the new department to be more transparent. When you were minister, Sir Alan, was, was ICAI, what was your response to working Well, we set it up because we wanted um, there to be a clear metric of results. We wanted transparency and scrutiny, and they were some of the fundamental principles behind the development um, 
uh, department under the coalition government and until recently since, which established it as the supreme development agency across the world, which then many wanted to copy. Uh, that, I think, has just had a stick of dynamite put in it. And it's a, a great pity. I, in terms of the, just what can be revealed in FOIs and things, I, I think that can easily be resolved. It depends on the nature of the information. But I, I, I think in this document, which came out two days ago, which is the government strategy, there's no clear intellectual explanation uh, either for justifying the merger or for saying really quite what it means to say that development, the development budget will now be used to support broader British interests. There's no intellectual explanation here of that concept beyond the words which are used to justify it. So it also dilutes some of the fundamental principles we established in 2010 uh, about focusing particularly on poverty. That's gone. What are we now trying to do? Make host governments happy by doshing out a bit of money? I mean, what is the rationale? What will be uh, the process and the practice of spending money through the FCDO in host countries. So uh, I, I think there's a very big intellectual question. And I'm just going to this point about it not being popular. Well, a lot of things that are morally good might not be popular. And we absolutely decided, as a matter of government policy, uh, to fly in the face of those who said, oh, it's all sandal-wearing people giving money to countries who were full of corruption and blah, 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 and to say, we actually will defy that point of view by making us the moral leader of effective, properly uh, managed development across the world. And that fundamental principle where we were the leader has been seriously undermined. So on that point, Sarah, as, as the other politician here, what, what would your response be to the question about why aid has never been a big political issue? And if I could ask a party political question, is this something that you think Labour, are you, are you going to use this as a point of distinction between yourselves and, and the Conservatives at the next election? Um, I think that uh, all of the opposition parties are going to use it as a point of difference because it very clearly shows that we want to do morally the right thing, uh, that we believe in supporting the poorest in the world, and that we think for the the small percentage, you know, 0.7 of GNI going to try and prevent extreme poverty is, is absolutely the right thing to do. It benefits all of us. Um, global health, for example, should be at the front of everybody's mind. I, I, I have, I think this myth that, um, the, some people in the British public, and I think what's meant by it is um, sort of working class people, if there is still such a thing, uh, don't support um, trying to eliminate poverty. They want to, you know, fill their own bellies first. Uh, I just find it offensive um, and also uh, a rather a naive position to take because I would say to the gentleman that raised it, uh, go into your churches go into your community groups, go into your schools, and I guarantee that they will all be supporting, you know, trying to, you know, twinning with a, a school out in uh, Mozambique or raising money for a cow or, you know, pen pal with someone. And just look at what happens whenever we have these big um, humanitarian crises. How quickly did we raise money for Ukraine? How quickly did we make raise money for um, sort of past disasters? This is something that we define ourselves by, and by we, I mean the British public. And the very fact that 
every party supported the move to put in law that commitment to 0.7, and it's still in the Conservative manifesto. They broke their own manifesto on this. Just shows how important it is. And I think, again, I come back to politics is about individuals and, and their individual pitches. It was Rishi Sunak that was sort of pushing this line that um, the British public, uh, or rather the Red Wall, uh, wouldn't support the money going to the poorest in the world. And I think that that was a blatant leadership pitch, and I think it backfired on him. Great. And then uh, the middle question there was about soft power. Stephanie, I don't know if I can turn to you. Does yeah. Bond, do you think you're a part of British soft power, the kind of international development sector? I mean, it's definitely something that has, uh, has been lost. And, but I think, I mean, I think all of these things are linked. You know, so actually, um, public support is challenging, but there are lots of glimmers of hope. You know, so after the cuts happened, um, over 50, the number of people who supported the aid budget and increasing the aid budget went over 50% because it was finally revealed all the things that we would lose when we cut the budget by 30%, losing sort of £4 billion. The kind of the healthcare systems, the women left without contraception, the, um, the loss of support in Yemen and all of those things were suddenly very much front of centre and people thought that that is something that we should be doing. Um, but it's been sort of so maligned through kind of um, undermining kind of messaging that it's sort of, it's been made a more divisive issue. And then as Sarah says, Ukraine, the Disasters Emergency Committee, record amounts of money um, secured for Ukraine, um, and still those issues very much um, supported. So it, it, it's not a kind of binary um, issue. And the reason for the need for transparency was very much around this sense that, um, that the aid budget needs to be spent well, and it is spent well, and the scrutiny suggests that um, there is very little wastage. So we need that transparency, and we need that scrutiny in order to maintain and also link back to public support. Um, and that is a concern um, for us too. We've seen, we, we, we are much less able to scrutinize what's happening and how money is being spent now than we were under um, DFID. Great, thank you. I want to turn to some questions from uh, those watching online. So there's a couple of questions about staffing. Obviously, a few months ago, there was rumors that the foreign, well, FCDO was facing around a 10% cut. The uh, papers were briefed, I think, at the end of last week that the whole civil service is, uh, the government wants to get it down by 20%. Uh, Simon, if I could turn to you, what, what would that mean for the FCDO? And what, would you, what do you think its leaders should be arguing for in terms of staffing? Um, I, I absolutely don't know what is uh, going on, but I would say a couple of things. First of all, uh, the new department needs to be restructured. Uh, at the moment, the leadership has just been glued together. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the consequences of merger ha are not evident in the structures of the new department, not in the IT, not in the terms and conditions, not in the leadership. So I think there is a big job of work that's now nearly two years behind schedule uh, at the top of the department. Um, uh, other staffing things, um, uh, although uh, you know, Sarah says that um, the SEO is, is, is not allowed to hire foreign people anymore, most people working for the SEO were foreign nationals. And in, uh, in country, uh, embassies are 85% 
local hires. Uh, that, I am confident, will remain. So it's, you know, the, 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 uh, the FCDO, I think, is going to be uh, an integrated organization with uh, many nationalities because that's what both the parent departments were. And the last staffing point is that one of the things that excited me about the merger was that it opened up more career pathways for both halves. And uh, what we see some of that in practice, uh, that the ambassador in uh, Zimbabwe, the high commissioner in Nigeria, the next high commissioner in Nigeria are people with a development background. And so the, the you know, best development people now have even more options uh, at the back end of their career. And I think that's a good thing. Great. Um, do you want to come back on that, Sarah? Well, I think they could do that anyway. Because you had open uh, selection, a, a DFID, senior person in DFID could apply to be an ambassador. We already. did it. So what have you gained? More, frankly, more. OK. Uh, let's go to the room. Uh, question here at the front, uh, and, then, and then the lady in front of you. Hi, thank you. Duncan Hart, formerly of DFID and now at the National Foundation of Educational Research. I think what's quite clear, uh, both here today and uh, previously, is just how polarised this argument is. On many issues, you have kind of balanced arguments, and there's no balance before me today, and there's certainly no balance when I really read anything. Uh, and I think that goes back to Sarah's point that this was ultimately a political decision, really. It was uh, one person's uh, dream, uh, and, it, and it came to a reality and was hidden within uh, the beginning of the pandemic, which was probably the worst time to be doing this. Uh, with that in mind, um, and I think, uh, Lord McDonald, you made the point about the different structures within the FCDO. How easy is it, perhaps, to unpick what's happened? Um, and I'm not talking about necessarily Labour or another party coming into power. Equally, a Conservative party with a different leader uh, who has a different... Um, who's on the other side of the polarised argument. Uh, what could happen? How could it happen? And how quickly could it happen? Great, thank you. Do you want to pass the microphone forward? To... Thank you very much, Gillian Dev, <coughs> former FCO. Um, retired now. Um, having worked mostly in sub-Saharan Africa and a lot in the MENA region, I worked very closely with DFID over all these years. I think there were a lot of problems in the way we operated even on the ground together, but they were practical reasons. The real fundamental, and here I disagree with you, Simon, it's not you merge the two organisations or even three organisations and bring trade in, is that we don't have a single strategy in the UK of what we want to be and do in the world. We are utterly conflicted. And if we bring the Home Office into it as well, would you bring the Home Office in? No. Because their visa system is absolutely opposed to everything we stand for in the Foreign Office. <laughs> yep. And is undermining what we're trying to do. So I think, and the first, second point is that I used to work in British Institute of Management. And the first thing you do when you're bringing together a merger as you look at organization cultures and you come up with a new organization culture that can work for both. Lord King did it brilliantly when he brought BEA, BOAC and SAMS together and created an entirely new British Airways with a different way of thinking, a different uh, way of operating and so on. And none of that has happened with this merger. And just a little aside that both Australia and Canada who did this before us, I think you're going back to being separate. Thank right. you. Thank you. Uh, and then Jill over here on the, on the other side. I just wanted to build on the theme of further machinery of government changes. 
I think one or two of the panellists suggested that actually the better merger might have been with the Department for International Trade. I wondered whether the creation of FCDO rules that out. Would that just be too big, too clunky or whatever? Or does it make it even more compelling? Should that be on the agenda for a future government? And maybe even a future government that decides development goes back into a separate department. Great. Well, let's start there. Um, and if we have time for more questions, let's do this as quick as possible. So further machinery of government changes, either demerging, adding in DIT, adding in the Home Office, what about defence, <laughs> climate change, how big, do you know, what... How what, big can you go? Yeah. What's, how low can you... Um, uh, I think overseas is, me, uh, for me, the key. Uh, we separated the Foreign Office and Home Office in 1782. I think that was a good decision. Um, uh, Second, future changes, it's a stroke of a pen from the Prime Minister. I mean, that's the way the country works. It's why the IFG is here, because, you know, to try and advise, because these changes are too easily made by a very small group of person, people, one person. Um, and that's how they tend to be done. And so all the, the thought about what to make of it happens on the other side. Uh, and it happened with the Labour government as well when they set up uh, culture, media and sport, when they broke out the Department of uh, Ministry of Justice from the Home Office. Um, the, the, the thought comes in afterwards. So this is a familiar model, but it could be undone, frankly, very easily. I do not think another Conservative um, Prime Minister would do that, but I can absolutely hear that Labour is keeping that option open. And of course, that is affecting how the... <laughs> how the merger proceeds. You know, the buy-in of people is, of course, affected by that. My last point is, Nick mentioned that in the past, um, out there, people in uh, sub-Saharan Africa thought Diffie was their ministry. Yeah, well, that is part of why this has happened, because this is all British taxpayer money. And so this is for the UK. And, and the FCO elements of FCDO are unapologetic that British interests are engaged. There are a lot of very poor people in the world. You can absolutely spend all of this money in a way compatible with international rules that aligns with overall British interests. Um, I think we know what Sarah thinks about demerging international development. Stephanie, what, what, what would your view be? Um, well, so... I think um, you reminded me that um, in the sort of Institute of Management, I think 70% of mergers fail, corporate mergers. So, you know, it's not always... It, maybe we should have looked at that before we did it. But um, I think sometimes we need to... I'm, I know I'm in the Institute for Government, but I feel like we should be looking at what do we need to achieve. And um, we should be thinking about... How do we solve global challenges? Um, how do we address big things like climate change? If the pandemic taught us anything, it's that we are all connected. And Simon, yes, it is taxpayers' money, but it's in taxpayers' interest to live in a safer, more secure, more equal world. And that is what that it's about. And I feel like we um, spend a lot of time thinking about how we organize ourselves and we've lost opportunities to be really focused on what we're trying to achieve and addressing these challenges. And that's what I'd like to come back to. And that's why I think Nick Dyer could, the Nick Dyer role could be an opportunity. But we're going to have to work hard to extract a lot from the international development strategy to make that happen. Great. Thank you. Uh, Nick Dyer, by the way, is one of the 
best officials I worked with in DFID, and you know, he's the right person in that job in the amalgamated department. Look, I, I don't think this is going to be easily disentangled. I mean, I think it's a great pity that DFID went into foreign office rather than trade. I think that would have been a good marriage. Um, I think that a lot of Simon's thinking harks back to the old overseas development agency days, but I would argue that since those days, when it was part of the Foreign Office, the nature of development has dramatically changed, matured, and moved on. The question, I think, that can fairly be put, and should be put, but which is not answered in this strategic document, is how can we make the very best out of this bad job? And I would suggest a number of things. Uh, I would focus on those very tangible issues, such as vaccinations, War, clean water and basic health, uh, which can be measured and delivered. I would row back from some of those more complicated four-year projects of you know, empowering justice in difficult countries, which are difficult to measure, difficult to uh, apply, and actually would cause a bit of friction with a newly amalgamated department, whereas in the past, DFID could deliver some of the rough messages and demand access to prisons. The FCO, for some other reasons, understandably, would not do so. So we could behave in a slightly different way uh, for the, the better good uh, of both our policies and the country, uh, the host country. And also, I think I would question some of the structures we use to spend the money. For instance, if you bung an enormous amount of money to a development bank, they might have the economies of scale and all that, and they deliver projects and funds, but it's not the Union Jack that's on the delivered amount, and we want attribution for our budget. So we always used to try and brand what we did when I was in DFID. But for instance, rather than do something through the uh, development bank for the Caribbean, it's much better that we give a million quid to each of the little countries separately so that they know that Britain, the head of the old Commonwealth of which they're a part, is actually doing something good for them. Then they might vote for us in the UN, that kind of thing. But if you do it through a development bank, you lose the attribution and the credit, which I think is one thing that really used to get up the nose of the Foreign Office, and quite rightly so. Uh, so did, it did with me when I was a different minister, and we changed a lot of that. So I think there's a lot to be done on the strategy. We can reshape the nature of development to make it work within this new structure with a slightly different set of priorities and a different methodology. And I would recommend you go back to some of those fundamental things which put food in mouths, uh, vaccines into arms, and fresh water out of the pumps. It's that kind of thing that I think I would reshape in this new, new picture. Great, thank you. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, so I'm afraid I'm not going to go around for another set of questions. But I want to end asking everyone the same final question, which is to pick up on the point that Stephanie made here about the kind of big picture and the, the point at the front about a single strategy. So the FCDO is, is a crisis response department most of the time, I think it's fair to say. And uh, the last couple of years have been particularly crisis heavy. But if it could have a strategy, a forward-looking set of objectives, what should that look like? And we, let's perhaps let's go do. around in this order. We do think about the longer term. We did, and I'm sure uh, they still do. Um, it's about all the things that Stephanie was talking about. It's about a safer, more prosperous, fairer, more democratic, with greater observation of human rights everywhere, greener, sustainable world. And I think that uh, foreign policies around the world are coalescing around planetary issues, 
even though for the next period we're going to think an awful lot about traditional foreign policy problems in Ukraine. Stephanie, what would you like the big picture to be? Well, I actually think Simon did a good job there. Um, it's about you know, a, a just, a fair, a sustainable world. I think also it's about the UK playing a key part in the multilateral system and collaborating with other countries to address these challenges. And so we do have some sort of nervousness about retreat from international law and, hum and um, you know, the Court on Human Rights and all of, all of those elements also need to be a sort of strong part of that as, as those basic freedoms are real underpinners of development and um, the future that we want to see. Great, thank you. Sarah? 100 million more people have gone into extreme poverty because of the COVID pandemic. There was little, if any, in the document that came out on Monday, the development document, uh, on how we're going to address that. Um, what there was was a lot on trade and a lot on economic employment, uh, empowerment around the world. Um, I don't see that trickle down working. So for me, it's the ODA money is designated in law to alleviate poverty. And I think that that should be our starting point, not um, a, a, a nice knock-on if it happens. Anything to add, Joanna? I think that where there were problems before between the two departments and the, the activities, it could have been and should have been addressed by the application of good political leadership. And that's, if anything, what was lacking. The answer to that deficiency was not, in my view, the amalgamation. And in terms of thinking long term, for instance, did the Foreign Office see the potential invasion of Ukraine as acutely as clearly the MOD and the intelligence agencies did? I think the answer to that is probably no, but time will tell. But when it comes to looking at a strategic threat like that, having the relationships between ministers which actually are essential to the negotiations which go around preventing them and solving them um, is going to be very, very difficult to have alongside the completely different skill set of managing development programs to make sure that babies don't die in poverty-stricken countries. And it is a massive, massive demand on even the greatest genius in British politics to be able to do all of these things at once. So I think we've set a challenge for this department which is going to be very difficult to meet and the first step to be taken to, I think, rescue both elements of the amalgamation is to simplify the way in which we deliver our development objectives. Okay, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up there. We've already gone over. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you to our panel. Uh, and thank you to the guys on the events team who put this together and made it work. Um, There will be a sound and video recording on our website within 24 hours if you want to listen again. And we have plenty more events coming up, including next week when we are talking about the use of WhatsApp in Westminster. So if you'd like to come back. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not doing that one. <laughs> Thank you very much.